Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of April 2020 and this is episode 158. On today's podcast, David Marks talks about his book on German Zeppelin raids and German propaganda as it's documented through pictures and postcards. I spoke to David over the interweb from his home in London. David, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Zeppelins? Yeah, thank you, uh, Tom. Uh, lovely to speak to you. My first podcast, so forgive me if I'm a bit, uh, bit nervous. A little bit about me. I'm a committee member of Cross and Cade International, which is the first World War Aviation Historical Society, and also a member of the Airship uh, Heritage Trust. Um, I can tell you, I lecture on behalf of these organisations on the subject of Zeppelin raids, the first bit uh, in the First World War. Missins also write... Uh, Crossing the Cade's quarterly email newsletter, Winging the Wives. I've managed to clean about 1,350 subscribers over the last eight years or so, and also contribute to uh, journals and magazines. Before we start, could you tell us about Zeppelins, what they are, who designed them, and the state of the technology in 1914? Okay, yeah. Um, Zeppelins, um, it was basically a lightweight structural skeleton, over which you've got outer layers and outer covers fitted. You've got hydrogen gas lifting the airship, uh, which are held in series of gas bags or ballonet attached inside the frame. Um, that's a good thing because you've got the gas bags, you can fill them or empty them individually. And if you've got a leak or a puncture in one cell, you won't lead to the loss of the airship. And you've got a rigid framed vessel, which you can allow greater size and lifting power. Obviously, it will take its name from the airship's inventor. The great man himself, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, born in July 1938. Obviously, there were other competitors, rigid airship type, like a Schutter Lance, which was wooden framed, as against the Zeppelin's metal, lightweight metal or duralumin frame. We can tell a little bit more about uh, Zeppelin himself, because he's a, a fascinating character in his own right. It's a military man with engineering background and science background, and actually was first inspired by aeronautics when he was an obs- official observer in the uh, American Civil War on the, the Union Army side. Took a tether balloon flight in Minnesota and he got the bug from there. And he decided that uh, this technology could use this technology as a military, uh, military purposes and they set about uh, creating his uh, great invention. So essentially we're talking about airships or dirigibles. So what sort of size was uh, a standard Zeppelin in 1940? I know they changed over the course of the war. Obviously, they got bigger and bigger throughout the conflict as the technology rapidly increased. The ones you're talking about at the beginning of the conflict are around 500 feet, and then you know going to 700 feet at the end of the war. So these are pretty big things. Um, you're talking um, was it the size of this girl Girton in central London? Is basically one of them floating over your head. And how many crew would would one of these things have? Um, it depends. They got bigger, the crews, but we were talking early, early ones, I would think around 13 to 15 uh, crewmen. And so what do those crewmen do? The crew that are really in action for 24 hours, you've got, it's got the, the pilot, got the crewmen there with jobs, maintaining the engines, 
which is held in separate gondolas. So you're moving up and down through the framework of the Zeppelin drop into different uh, gondolas. Uh, you've got communications, got a radio guy, and you've got all these guys maintaining the pressure of the individual guest bags. We call them cell makers, effectively, because uh, that's what they were doing. They were repairing the uh, the gas bags to make sure there was no leaks and things like that. You had, you know, people who were trained to use defensive machine guns, things like that. It was a it was a, a fully operational crew. Initially, it was an army based discipline, but gradually as the war progressed, the army dropped out from. Uh, having raiding Zeppelins. And how did the German authorities see the use of these Zeppelins in 1914, and how many ships did they have? You've got to think the Count Zeppelin was developing this technology from actually 1900 onwards, and you know, the public were greatly supportive of him. Uh, when there were accidents, you know, the, the public would raise vast sums of uh, money to enable him to continue his work. At the outbreak of war, uh, it just had this very small airship fleet. I believe it was just 11 airships. Uh, 10 of which were under control of the army at that stage. Those uh, 11 airships included three commercial airships, uh, which were pleasure craft, which went round Germany, uh, towns and cities. It was a great honour to have a a Zeppelin passing over your town. There wasn't that many airships, and they weren't really equipped greatly for war, but very, very quickly they developed the, the, the technology to make them uh, more fearsome weapons of war. And did the Navy see a use of them at all, or the German Navy? Uh, yeah, the, um, they also they were excellent reconnaissance aircraft. You've got, the, you've got a three-dimensional battlefield now. They can see, they can stay up in the air for a long time, and you can see for miles. So they did have a quite an underrated role as reconnaissance uh, for the uh, VIC's fleet. So how were Zeppelins used in the early part of the war, and what countries were they used against? Okay, in the early part of the uh, the war, they were used for a variety of work, mainly over the western and eastern fronts. But it's new technology; they didn't quite know how to use them, and they were there was some poor handling and their losses from ground fire because they were flying too low over the battlefields, which wasn't great. And there was some there were these early very basic. Uh, Zeppelins were lost. The main first success the uh, the Zeppelin had was over Belgium in August September 1914, uh, basically helping the German advance across uh, Belgium uh, early in the war. They were dropping you know, basically improvised ordnance at that that point. They hadn't developed you know, a specific um, Zeppelin bomb, and so the early um, the early raids on uh, the Age and Antwerp they were literally dropping things like uh, artillery shells with blankets on to uh, to hit the target to, to have some uh, to make them fall right. But that uh, that soon improved. So we've got the uh, early raids on Belgium, which were which had some success, and that's where you first see the use of first the propaganda side really kicking in and for first of all postcards and the like and going through 1914 you know there was this clamor from the from the the german public to strike at the enemy's heart which is which is um england and london and so they started to use the zeppelins against uh, urbanized areas was this a sort of an an idea of uh, either terror bombing or was it just really just to drop things on the enemy to to, to for the for, for the sake of either propaganda or um you know hitting industrial targets uh it was a it was a mix of that so we've got this effectively this cult of worship of of, uh, of Zeppelin um, from uh, 
throughout the uh, from 1900 onwards, really. And he's a figurehead of the German industrial advances of the day. So there's this clamor, as I said, from the public to, yeah, let's use this, this great invention to attack and the the German high command uh, the army and navy they wanted to use these as as offensive weapons and to to bomb a combination of military targets and also to start to sow some fear and panic into the country you've got the first problem you've got is the Kai getting that past the Kaiser because he was very reluctant to use the, uh, the Zeppelin in this uh, urbanized bombing capacity and particularly wanted to stay away from London because that's where his, uh, his cousin, relatives lived. And he was anxious not to uh, bomb them or the kind of the great public buildings of London. But uh, he was gradually, gradually overruled by that and uh, worn down effectively. And by January 1915, we had the first raid on uh, on the East Coast, on uh, Norfolk, um, was at Great Yarmouth and Kings Lynn in particular which caused uh, first four casualties and really kick-started the whole, the whole Zeppelin campaign and the whole debate of the Zeppelin's uh, terror weapons, the baby, ki- the baby killers as they became known. They did their best to look for industrial targets, but at that point, you got very rudimentary bombing techniques. These early Zeppelins, these, you know, they literally they've got better bombs now within the, within the first few months and they're dropping them out the side of the open open zeppelin gondola so you know the accuracy is not going to be great and the, particularly those initial raids they were looking to bomb humber uh, military positions there but ended up over norfolk to the to the weather conditions the problem if you're up in the zeppelin you don't you're up at ten thousand feet and you've got the winds blowing the back across and it's going to be very uh they did improve it um again Technology advances pretty quickly, but there was always this battle against getting to the right place, knowing where you are and dropping dropping the bomb at the right place. Your book looks at the way that the Germans use the Zeppelin in propaganda postcards. What did they want to achieve from this, and what were the sort of the large theme? What were the, the themes of these postcards? As I said, you've got Count Zeppelin's dimension, total part of of Germany's identity, industrial identity. And whilst the public well, you know, probably wanted to see uh, the Zeppelin uh, be this weapon of war, so you've got a whole mixture uh, of stuff. You've got to, as I said in the book, you know, you've got to look at the whole the German propaganda machine in, in the round in, in the start of the war. The way it was effectively sold to and the, and the German public considered it was it was a defensive war against the aggression of France. Russia initially, and then in England, which became the the arch enemy. So you've got the Zeppelin as his instrument to uh, attack England. Always England, very, very rarely Britain. So you've got these things like God strife for England, may God punish England. That's a a kind of a major theme, which you'll find anywhere, classed all over Germany and on postcards and stamps and all sorts of places. So you've got all these serious propaganda themes on on the postcards, which are uh, illustrated in in the book. So you've got got a real combination of stuff. You've got fine art cards. We've got majestic fleets of Zeppelins flying over the North Sea over fleets of battle cruisers waved on by Teutonic Knights and Valkyries and the like. And then you've got comic postcards with cartoon versions of Count Zeppelin in his uh, kind of sailor's hat, dropping bombs out of picnic baskets from out of watering cans onto uh, enemy troops and the like. And then you've got this whole 
wider depiction of the enemy, the French as kind of slovenly disorganized uh, soldiers, Russians as kind of drunken human Cossacks, and British uh, or or the English usually depicted like in kind of Victorian garb or in or in kilt. Any British soldier seemed to wear a kilt uh, to the Germans. Um, you've got all these images, so some of them quite savage images in the postcards, satirical images of the uh, of these characters getting getting blown up along with their uh, other allies, you know, Japan, Montenegro, Serbia, and the like. So there's a whole thing there, and you can use children to depict what the message you want to get across on the postcard. Some great images of children at play and they've got, a, they kind of make an impromptu zeppelin out of a table and a broom and they're bombing little toy soldiers, which is supposed to represent English soldiers and London. Some bits quite, some bits quite beautiful and some bits fairly offensive. The Germans are found love their toilet humour. Sure. And you get these uh, great postcards of British and French on their chamber pots, you know, literally paralysed in fear from uh, from the raiding Zeppelin. So all this stuff is to to reinforce to the German public that uh, they've got this this great weapon of war, and it can it can raid the enemy and bring them to their knees. But you've got some other beautiful images of French, uh, the, the London London and Paris under attack from Zeppelins. And you've got the, the public uh, in panic running to tube stations or jumping the fountains and being petrified by by these by the Zeppelins. And the cards would have, for example, on the reverse, a, a lengthy song, poem, uh, saying how, how wonderful the Zeppelins were and what and what damage and panic they're going to cause. So all these postcards are going round, soldiers at the front, or passed around the public, and they've got this impression ahead that the Zeppelin's going to help them win the war. And what was the scale of the production of these postcards? I mean, how many have you actually found, or, and do you actually know what sort of numbers they were produced in? That's a very good question. I couldn't tell you the, the numbers, but you know, you're talking in the hundreds of thousands, or maybe more, you know, certainly... I have um, you know, several hundred examples in the collection, maybe more. And really, the whole the whole thing of the First World War, it was it was almost conducted by postcard, the uh, the propaganda campaigns. You know, throughout the whole war, you've got you've got millions millions of postcards uh, circulating between all the. Uh, or the Allied countries. And were the German postcards predominantly produced for internal consumption, or were they for external use as well? Um, mainly internal. You'll find that with um, the British postcards and uh, French postcards of the, of the time. They're mainly for internal use. It's to bolster the home front, and it's to have this communication with uh, with the guys at the front as well. You would have a selection which were done specifically for the uh, US market because obviously both the Allies and the uh, the Germans were looking to influence public opinion in the state and other neutral countries around the world. So you'll get postcards which are specifically targeted at the American audience. Did the state um, produce them or were they produced by private publishers? On the whole, private publishers. But there will be some degree of censorship and control by the uh, various elements of the government. 
And were Zeppelins portrayed in other types of memorabilia that were produced in Germany during the war? Zeppelins, yes, were on all sorts of things. You, obviously, as I said, you've got this whole um, whole body of um, souvenirs and the whole industry built up from 1900 onwards uh, with um, Zeppelin as its figurehead. So here's on all sorts of things on posters and um, you know dead template toys and carousels with uh, zeppelins on his faces on uh, biscuit tins oil cans anything you care to name uh, beer steins. And this obviously went through into the uh, First World War. His face is on you know, commemorative medallions and coins on stamps. Faces everywhere. And, you know, you'll find, for example, one of the examples in the book, which I like, you've got a sweet bag, a lucky bag. And it looks like a really innocent packet. And you've got the Zeppelin putting out sweets to the children underneath. But the whole, the whole reverse of it is just uh, a whole celebration of how they bombed Belgium to pieces and things like that so and did the the image of Zeppelin and his Zeppelins actually change as the war went on I'm just thinking about whether he was superseded by um you know portrayals of the Gotha bomber which obviously came into use much more in sort of 1917 1918 yeah you can effectively trace the uh the, the rise and fall of the Zeppelin through the postcards um you've got the effectively 1914, 1915, and 1916, where the the Zeppelin is almost unassailable in its raids until the uh, Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service come up with the uh, the tools to defeat the uh, the raider uh, with uh, incendiary ammunition, basically. And so then you'll see the Zeppelin postcard, the production, and the being sent in the post tailing off. And you'll see the other other branches of the service. You've got the uh, man from Richthofen and his uh, flying circus, and the all the aces of the uh, fixed wing. They you know they get prominence, and you know they're they're, they're the heroes. They're not Zeppelin. And then you've got the unrestricted um, U-boat campaign in early 17 so you know the uh that that is a predominant on postcards and the zeppelin stuff tails off um and again as you said the from through may 17 onwards you've got the gotha bombers these uh huge uh fixed wing aircraft which can fly over from bases in belgium in numbers and deposit even more bombs onto the uh unsuspecting public but there's not a huge amount of postcard propaganda about those it didn't have the same uh, cachet the same effect as uh, having a zeppelin on your postcards it's just another aircraft and you know you can count the uh, tell you every zeppelin that's produced and what happened to it you know how can you do that with uh, aircraft after aircraft coming off the production line so it's a very it's a very different way to do it and you know you see the odd postcard you know same on the the british side as well there's not many propaganda cards you know being defiant against gothers you know they would recycle you know, existing zeppelin images and things like that so it's um, kind of just this niche this golden golden age of where the zeppelin really ruled the skies and was bombing with impunity and when that kind of when that fell away you know the the production of postcards and memorabilia ceases. And finally, where can people learn more? Um, obviously, the uh, discerning uh, listeners can get hold of my book, uh, The Zeppelin Offensive, a German perspective of pictures and postcards, or my earlier publication, Let the Zeppelins Come, published uh, in March 
2017. It shows everything, the, the propaganda from the, the British side. And obviously, if they want to have a chat, uh, please uh, get hold of me at Zepraider on Twitter. David, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.